as you turn there, just kind of a quick recap. We started this book. We said the book was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was set, up, set aside by God to go around the Roman Greco world and to preach the gospel. And upon going to a city, he would share the gospel. People, men and women, would believe upon the gospel. And that's how churches were started. And then he would leave leaders there to continue the church. Now, two of those leaders that we see in the scriptures are Timothy, who Paul wrote a letter back to um, called 1 Timothy. Then he wrote a second letter back to him called, get this, 2 Timothy. And then, and then there was another guy named Titus. And he left Titus in the city of Crete. Now, Crete was a bigger city, a uh, metropolitan city, uh, different ideologies, beliefs, etc. But the gospel had been planted there, and people began to believe upon the life and work of Jesus Christ, and churches were beginning to be formed. Well, Paul writes this letter to Titus to say, here's what I want you to do. I want more churches started throughout this city, and I want a certain type of leaders, which we talked about in week one. These leaders need to have quality and attributes that show the presence and love of God in their life. And then last week when Tyler taught, he talked about the opposite of that, the false teachers that are saying one thing but doing another, which shows they really are not believing upon the true power of the gospel. And then this week, what Paul begins to do is show how the gospel begins to shape a people as we live in society. And, and how as we live in society, that a belief in Jesus should begin to form us and shape us in such a way that we begin to resemble the life and work of Jesus. And so we'll look at some of those structures. Now, for a visual, for us to understand the culture of which Paul was teaching to through Titus in terms of their society, here's how their society was set up. They believed in the Roman Greco world, as the family goes, so goes society. So when society was turning all over and going the wrong way, they would look at the father and go, how's your household? And here's how the household was set up. There was a father. There was a mother. There was adult kids, whether they had children or not. Adult kids. Slaves, bond servants, what we'll get to. And then small kids. Now, this is radically different than when we think about a family. You think about the mom and the dad, the two kids, a picture of the dog, the other dog. Right? No dogs up there. And so there, there's their picture of family multiple people, and you could even put grandparents and so forth in there. Well, Paul begins to show when the gospel hits a family and people begin to believe in this particular structure, how does it look? And so Paul's going to address older men and younger men, older women and younger women, and how do we work? And so we'll begin to look at that ultimately in the framework, if you're following with me. It's looking at the gospel, what we believe, and then how it's worked out is in the context of one another's in discipleship. And the bulk of the time is spent looking how older women are supposed to be teaching younger men and older women to, to younger women, etc. So that's discipleship. And when it's lived out in a such a way, it becomes attractive to the community around us that becomes the mission. So it's gospel worked out in the context of discipleship. That's one another's. That's not a program. That's not a system. That's a person. And then ultimately, when we live this way, it begins to be mission because we witness who God is in Christ. And so that's where we're, we're headed today. So if you would, would you guys pray with me and we'll ask God to bless our time. Jesus, we thank you and we need you. We thank you that you give us good news in your life, that we can flow from that good news, we can live in that good news, it could shape every single area of our life. And so, Lord, as men and women and children today, God, would you allow us by your spirit to be able to understand your word that would bring about encouragement conviction that our lives would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Christ's name, amen. So my, the job that I had before I became a pastor, I was a missions counselor at Arizona State University. 
Um, I got this job, um, and my role as a missions counselor, if you guys are not familiar with that, was I had to go to particular schools and to try to convince people that they should apply and to go to ASU if they can get in. Big if. So there, there, that, was, that was my role. And when, we, when we, we all got hired about the same time, they start giving us our different cities. And the first person got, like, East Coast, New Jersey. Another person was going to Seattle and Denver. I'm thinking, I'm going to get a really nice city. When it came down to me, my two cities they gave me were Tucson and Yuma, right? <laughs> and if you're from Tucson or Yuma, that's no dig at you. I mean, I'm sure God's at work in Yuma. So there, there's, there's some... There's some incredible things that happen in those places. However, it wasn't like that fun. I didn't travel anywhere in terms of leaving this state or whatnot. And we had gotten married, so it's probably good for me not to be gone for, for that long. But I would get in this huge, like, mom van. And if you have a mom van, praise the Lord. And, but I'm in, I'm in this mom van driving from, from Chandler down to, to Tucson. And let me just tell you, there's nothing worse than driving a huge van with a huge ASU sticker in Tucson, right? People, people know sign language really well there. Um, <laughs> And so, so <laughs> yeah, um, here's the thing. They never gave me any training on how to do this. So I would show up to this school, and they would say, we want you to speak to the kids. And I'm like, I don't know what I want you to speak about. So I would allow the other reps who were there, there'd be all these other universities there, and they would say something, and I would just say what they said, but then I'd plug in ASU, right? Like at ASU, it snows, and it's like, oh, wait, sorry, that was Harvard. Um, here's what we do. And then they would kind of convince us to say, hey, we have 100 and so many majors. You can find a major here. Well, then someone would say, hey, what about if I'm pre-med? And I was supposed to say, well, you could be pre-med at ASU, which really wasn't true because I don't know if you know this. ASU doesn't have a medical school, but U of A does, right? And so I'm like, do I lie? Do I tell the truth? But if I tell the truth, they're going to go to U of A. So that's probably for me to lie. It might be better. I'm just kind of hard, hard decisions, right? And I remember going to my, 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 my boss and going, um, is there ever like a time when I'm going to get trained to know what I'm supposed to do? And he, you know what he said to me? You'll figure it out. <laughs> now, here's, the, here's what I read in the, in the Gallup uh, journal. That 70, it was 65 to 75% of people say that one of their biggest complaints in their jobs is they don't know what their employer wants from them. <laughs> Some of you guys go, mm, you know, because you're like, yeah, I'm there. Like they don't, they don't know. Like they're, you're doing your work, you're doing your job. You think you're doing the right way. You think you're doing what they want, but you have no idea. And usually when they come in, it's usually when you've done something wrong. And, but I didn't know that was wrong. You should have known, right? So, like, that's a, that's a big problem for people. I believe that many of us become Christians, and we're in that same boat. Like, we believe in Jesus, and we know intuitively that we're supposed to represent him, his values, his purpose, his mission, and, and something which God's doing in the kingdom. And, and we kind of go about maybe going to church, maybe doing certain things in church. Um, we get married and we're supposed to have a quote-unquote godly relationship and then guys are supposed to lead and every guy is going, I don't even know what that means. Does that mean I start first and I, do I drive? Is it wrong for me not to be in the passenger seat? Can I lean back? I mean, like, how, 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 am, I supposed to, how am I supposed to do this? And we're going, could somebody help us? Well, here's what Paul is saying. I'm going to help you. I'm going to write to you ultimately what it looks like to live in response to this gospel. And in doing so, like I said, he starts off with make sure you're doing this all in response to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's it. Everything else that he gives us to do flows from that. And then he addresses older men, older women, younger women, and younger men, and slaves and bondservants. And so that's where we're, we're at today. So if you're with me in Titus, start with me first in verse 1, chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. When he says, but as for you, he's talking to Titus 
in response or compare and contrast to what he talked about previously. And that was these false teachers, they're all bad. And he talked about the culture. The culture, they're lazy, lying gluttons. He goes, false teaching produces false living. But as for you, teach what accords to sound doctrine. Now, sound, that word means healthy. It's where we get the word hygiene from. It's a good thing. And doctrine just means teaching. And so, in essence, what Paul is saying is teach what accords to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, if you've been around redemption for some time, you hear us use that word gospel quite a bit. And, and, and sometimes you can just begin to assume, like, yeah, I kind of get it. Like, right, Jesus died for my sins. Yes, but the implications of that is far-reaching. That we say this often, quoting Tim Keller, that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but it's actually the A through Z. That you never get past the gospel. It's not a set of doctrines in which you say you believe, and then all of a sudden you sign a card, and you just hang on to your born-again stick to Jesus comes back and, like, zaps you to heaven or something like that. But, but the gospel is a true story of God entering into this world through the life of Jesus Christ and is rec- reconciling and redeeming all things and every single one of us who by faith enter into that relationship, have right relationship with God, and are called to be witnesses into the world. So, so the gospel is not you and I putting together our spiritual resumes, handing them to God, and God looking up there going, oh yeah, you're fit for the kingdom. It's God himself in Christ giving himself for us that we actually begin to be fit for the kingdom. We, we, we say it like this way, that you're not called because you were qualified, but you're qualified because you were called. And it places everything around the work of Christ. So that if you are a follower of Christ in this room, you would say Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. There is a life that he expects of you. That he empowers you by the Holy Spirit to live. And it plays itself out, one, by believing in the gospel and continuing in the gospel. But it works itself out in the context of one another's. In the context of one another's life on life for life. And that's what discipleship begins to look like. He says, okay, here's what I want it to look like. And discipleship, guys... Yes, you can read books. Yes, you can take classes. They're great. But it's people. It's life on life for life. The way we say it here, it's one beggar telling the other beggar where they both can find bread. Pointing people to the work of Christ Jesus. Well, he gets into that. And first, he starts with where I think you should start to. Start with. Verse 2. Older men. Older men. So the eight of you in the room. All right. Here's what he says. (laughs) Older men are to be sober-minded dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. He, he, he starts off by saying to the older men, be sober-minded. So in Greek literature and in their plays, there was always the character of the old drunk that was kind of aloof and kind of fumbling and stumbling all over the place. He says, don't be that guy. Be sober-minded. Meaning there is something about life, the longer you live, the more pain and the more reality sets in that it's, it's pretty easy to try to escape that through, through, through means, whether that means be over-drinking or overeating or narcotics or whatever it may be, that there's a form of escape. Because, no, be sober-minded. Sit in reality and at the same time don't grow cynical. Be sober-minded into a way that there's clear thinking that's happening because the church needs that from you. And he doesn't just stop there. He says be dignified, meaning be reverent. That word literally means that you are worthy of respect. There's a life in which you live that people say, I want to I follow that guy. There's something I want to know about that guy. And this day and age, older meant older. It meant people who were usually between 50 to 70 or older. People didn't live as long then, but these people were sober-minded, had clear thinking. 
They were people who were worthy of respect. They were self-control, meaning, and you'll see this come up with a lot of the different genders he talks to here. And he says, make sure that you know that self-control is a godly restraint to not just do what you want to do, but ultimately submit your life to God. (laughs) That you are no longer your own, but you belong to God, both body and soul, and everything that you do. And he says, here's how it works out when you're faithful, when you're loving people, and in steadfastness is when you persevere, that you keep doing it. In essence, we need our older men not to check out. And we're going to get the older women here in just a second. We just need our older men not to check out. Not to say, I've raised my kids. Um, I've raised my family. Um, I used to serve in churches. Um, it's really cool what you guys are doing and what God's doing with all these young people here, but I'm going to stand on the periphery. It's like, no, no, we need to kind of get you in here. Because many of us, we don't have fathers that we go to for advice. We don't have grandfathers we go to advice. And so we just kind of go to each other, and that sucks, right? And, and, and so we, 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 need, we need older men to say, can we submit to that? Well, Paul says that's older men. But then he says likewise, verse 3, older women likewise, meaning in the same way. Now, let me tell you this. I'm not going to say any of you guys are old. There's no older women here at this church. Now, if they tell you that, that's their business. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Older women likewise are to be reverent and behavior. That language that is that they're priestly. The language there is literally you're functioning as the role the way the priest did. And the priest would take what they know to be true about God and begin to teach it and model it to the people around them. It's not perfect. It's just saying, would you please just relate to us what godliness is like. There's, there's nobody better than people who have been doing it for a long time. It's not perfect. It's people who have been doing it for a long time. But then he says this, and this might be something that was happening there. He says, older women likewise be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, and not slaves to much wine. <laughs> Apparently, in that day, there were women who were older who would actually gossip and slander. Now, that was happening in the first century Roman Greco world. <laughs> Think the Lord, things have changed, right? <laughs> he says, make sure, make sure you're not slanderers. I mean, that's telling a true story or a false story that's going to tear somebody down. Here's how this could look. As you get older, you understand your flaws and you understand the flaws of the people who are younger than you. And you can see that there are things that change. The generation changes. I'm not very old myself. I'm not old at all, I think. But I'm watching how the generation underneath me is completely different. And I can see myself sometimes going, oh, they don't get it. They've lost it. They've missed it. They think that that's it. That ain't it, Right? whether it's style of dress or the way they do their hair or whatever it is. I can only imagine being around for a while and watching women. And here's how this usually comes up. Oh, I can't believe she wore that to church. You know, you know I was talking to somebody who told me that, you know, their mom used to do that. Her mom did that? Yeah, you know, her mama and her grandma. Did. I mean, just, it just starts going and going and going. And in, instead of having the cynicism is to be able to come alongside that woman, understand why she does the things that she does understand who she is, where she's from, where she's from, what's her story, to be able to love her. It says, listen, make sure you act like the role of the priest, that there's reverence there, that you yourself are not slandering, and that you're not slave to much wine. Because again, apparently in the first century, people used to drink a lot of wine, right? And so we got to apply this to our life any way that we think we can, because I know there's nobody in this church that drinks too much wine, right? And the point of that is that you're alert, that you're present, that you're there. All right, can I just talk to our older people here real quick? Here's, here's what I get from many of you. I have raised my family. I've done my thing. I don't even know if my family turned out great, so I don't want to, like, mess up on anybody else. 
We need you. There is no such thing as the people. If, if the guy came to me and the woman came to me, my family's perfect, my grandkids are perfect, what do you need me to do? I'm like, you got problems, right? Because that's not true and you're a liar. But if you say, I don't know if I've done it well, but I'd be willing to give myself to people. And it's not even just preaching the Bible. We can actually find a lot. There's a lot of resources out there that we can learn how to read the Bible. You know what some of us need? How to tie a tie. How to iron. What's an iron? <laughs> right? How to grill a steak. True story. My first wedding that I ever did, I showed up, and I had had somebody tie my tie, and I always just left that tie tied. And then I untied it for some reason. I'm 20 minutes before the wedding, and I'm in the back of the office, and I, I open up a laptop, and I YouTube how to tie a tie. And that's how I learned how to tie a tie. Right? Right? And that's, that's okay, because YouTube's good for that. But it might be good just to have an older man to say, come here, dude. Or no, he wouldn't say that. Come here, young man. <laughs> to tie a tie. It might be good for us to learn how to cook. It may be good for us to learn. I mean, just, just things that, that, that are good, helpful things to have people in our lives. Now, young people, you got to give them that opportunity. If we could just confess and be honest, we're the most arrogant group of people. Because our older people are treated like trash in our culture. It's like they don't even exist. Like, when's the last time you called your grandma and said, thank you for raising mom and dad? When's the last time you called your grandpa and said, thank you for raising mom and dad? I can only imagine how hard that is because I'm trying to raise my kids or I'm just trying to figure life out myself. When's the last time you asked them, what was marriage like? When's the last time you, you asked them, what was it like managing money? Like, things like that. When you, when you watch people and, and how they they age with maturity and how their maturity begins to grow and how you just learn from them how the things we think are major, they're like, not that big a deal. The things we think are small, hey, don't forget those things. Don't forget those things. So this, this past week or so, we had an opportunity to be with the guy um, and, and hear wisdom from him, and it was amazing. So Tyler Johnson, who taught last week, his dad, Mark Johnson, lives in Denver. And Mark um, has coached baseball at the same high school. This is his 44th season, right? Like, who does something for that long, right, for our culture, right? And he's been offered several uh, professional baseball jobs and college jobs, and he says, I'm going to commit to this one thing. And he talked to us about staying the course and marriage and work and just this life, and it was great. And, and he's 71 years old. He's been married to the same woman. He's got great kids. And, you know, he talks like a coach. You know, he usually puts his foot up and, you know, raspy voice and everything. But it was just the wisdom. And what I loved about him and what Paul is getting at is he was still present, he didn't look and say, your generation's getting it wrong in these areas. He began to bring our generation along and say, what are the things we know to be true no matter what generation you're in? And let me teach you those things. Let me show you what it looks like to love the same woman for a long time and serve her and care for her. Let, let, let me show you these principles that you'll need the rest of your life. Another thing is he was always learning. Like, I'm still going to wake up. I'm still going to read my Bible. I'm still going to drink my cup of coffee. At every marriage conference I've ever been to, the people who were there are actually the people who have been married for like 25 years or longer. You usually would think it'd be us who's like 10 years younger. We need to be there. We're not there. Yet they're still there taking notes. Oh, that, did, you, did you get that? Okay, right? <laughs> it just might be that they've been married for 25 years or longer because they're still practicing. It just might be that their relationship with Jesus is so grown because they're still practicing it. What I, what I learned from Coach Jay as well is at 71, he was talking about Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And I'm like, how do you know these things, right? And he's just like, oh, the kids. He's still present. He's present. He, he, he totally got it. Paul says, older men, older women, that's what we need from you. And 
younger men, younger women, we need to submit to that, and we need to invite that into our lives. Amen? We, we got to find it. Well, now he gets into the part that y'all have been waiting for. And he, and he begins to talk about women to be able to teach younger women. Verse 4, uh, continue in the latter part of verse 3. It says, they are to teach what is good, meaning there's a role of teaching for the women here in this church. And it says, so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be riled. So here's what he's saying here. First, he says to them, make sure older women teach the young women to love their husbands and their children. Now, if you're like me, you're going like, does that even need to be written? Right? Like, does, I mean, love your husband and your children, doesn't that, doesn't that just like normal? Okay, we have the privilege in our culture that we choose who we marry, right? So everyone, those of you who are married, everyone who you married, you're married to, you chose that, prop, you chose that person, <laughs> right? You, you chose that person, and it's good, and you love that person, and, and if, if God blesses you and you have a child, that you love that child. And our culture is a culture where we adore kids. I mean, in that day, kids were just like, why are they here? What I, what I love in our culture, we adore our kids. Sometimes I think we put our kids in the center of our marriage, which is not good at all. But we at least adore them. I mean, you see, it's not just the woman holding the kids. You see even around here, you got your little reverse backpack thing with the kids, with the fathers walking around with the kids and the babies. That's a good thing. Well, imagine being in that day where you were, you were 13 years old, and your dad said you're going to marry some man who you've never met before. Or at least you don't know. He's 28. And they would start marrying as soon as the, the, the uh, uh, young lady would start her menstrual cycle. If you don't know what that is, go look it up. Find an older woman or an older man <laughs> to explain it to you. And then, and then they would take this woman, and this woman would be married to this 28, 29-year-old guy and begin to be intimate with one another and then having babies immediately. And the reason why they would start having babies immediately is what we found archaeologically is that there were many, many tombs and you know, what you would have where you would bury children, uh, young children, because they would lose a lot of kids. Um, so you would probably use, they would think, from, lose um, two to five kids that would die. Okay, can you just see the trauma and all that? You're 13, you're married to some man who you don't really know, and you're dealing with the loss of children. I love what Paul does here. Paul gets it. He doesn't say, Titus, go help those women. Preach to them. He says, no, Titus, find older women to help them because who but who can help them through this other than women who have gone through the same thing. Like he puts it back in the context of discipleship. That's what it means to reflect the glory of the Lord through the gospel is to be in these discipleship relationships. Well, then he moves on from there to talk about loving your, your husband and loving your wife. Like love your husband, right? We have the tendency sometimes in our culture to downplay or talk bad about our spouses. This goes for men and women. Never talk bad about your spouse. Never, never, don't laugh at their expense. I get there's humor and there's jokes, I get it, but don't, don't talk bad about them. Don't, don't badmouth them, especially when they're not in the room. It's not, it's not fair to them, it's not fair to your marriage. It does nothing for anybody. Like, that's your spouse. Love them. So love your, so in case, women, love your husbands, and then love your children. When the gospel begin to come in these ladies' lives, they begin to realize these children are not just something to continue the legacy, but the Lord actually says they're a blessing. They're a blessing to be with them. And if you're not a mom, right, which I'm not, the reality of it is sometimes kids don't seem like a blessing. And if you find yourself with young kids for a long period of time and you've been a mom, you've had that experience of going, I wish these were somebody else's kids right now. But you still love them, right? And, and you shouldn't feel guilty about that. That's you trying to raise a human life. 
Like that human life was developed in you. You gave birth to that human life. You have the responsibility of that human life. You need help. And dudes, we're going to get to you in a second because um, you should be helping. But that, that's, that's a call now that becomes a blessing now in light of the gospel. It's a gift that you have the kids if you're able to have kids. Well, he goes on. Husbands and children. He says this. Love your husband and your children and be self-controlled. Exercise godly restraint. Be pure. Working at home, kind and submissive to your husband. The, the, the two that come up, working at home and be submissive to your husband, right? All right? <laughs> Let me say this. Working at home means that you are busy at home. This is complete response to what he said in chapter 1, that the Creighton culture was that they were lazy. He's not saying by any means that a woman cannot have employment, vocation, or whatever you want to call it outside of the home. He's not saying that. He is saying that there is a responsibility primarily of a woman to care for her home, um, to make sure the home is a place where the husband and the kids and the wife and the family would be able to understand and know and love each other and love God. That's not to say that the husband doesn't get in on that. That's not to say that the husband doesn't do laundry, the husband doesn't do dishes, or the husband doesn't pick up the kids or whatever. That, that doesn't mean that at all. It's just saying that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a call there for the woman. Um, if, if the guy is saying, it's your job to do all laundry, your job to do this, your job to do that, that's, that, that's more of what that guy is saying than what God is saying, right? And again, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. I would love to tell you how it looks in my house, but we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> so I think... Honestly, the church does not do the best job at allowing women to be women. We say that we want to look at the scripture and say, it says that a woman should be at home and so forth. And the scripture is saying that she should be a placemaker at home, making the home a, a place where her family can be loved and cared for. It doesn't say that she needs to be outside the home. And I get where a lot of people say, well, they need to be at home because it's reacting against this place and this culture now where women are just putting career over their family. And I would say, you're right. We should make sure we tell our women to make sure they're not making career an idol over their family. But don't you think we should tell guys that too? There's probably more men right now that are making career an idol over their family and somehow thinking they're doing it in the name of the Lord, and they're not. So, so let, let's be mindful of that. Um, so in our household, we feel like the roles in themselves, the way they work out is me and Holly, are, we, we believe we complement each other. And so it works out different. Um, Holly does a good job in the home, and I help out. I have no problem doing laundry. I have some problems doing dishes, but I, I help out with the dishes. Um, I don't mind cleaning. Holly actually pays all the bills. And that's not because I said pay all the bills. It's because when it was up to me, they weren't getting paid. And so, <laughs> so she, she does that. Um, I, I believe our family has a, a really good dynamic where our kids are loved and cared for. But and I don't say this often, but my wife will... God willingly, probably have a job outside the home. She's in school right now, and it takes a lot of time. Um, we submitted that, even that choice, to older women, and it was a very, very good conversation of what do you think, what do you think about this, and they were able to speak into that, and all of it wasn't what we wanted to hear, but it was what we needed to hear. What Paul is saying is saying, go to the older women and get advice. And then he goes to the next one, be submissive to your husband. I think it says be submissive to your own husband. Let's talk about that especially for the many people who are dating. Um, I'll hear, I need to be submissive to my boyfriend. No, you don't, right? He's not your husband. And if he's telling you that you need to be this submissive to him, first, number one, break up with him. <laughs> Two, give him our number, name, and address, send him to the church, and the elders will lay hands on him. 
So that, that, that's not what that's saying. And I, the other part is this. There is a thought in our culture, even in church cultures, that a strong-willed woman is not submissive. A strong-willed woman is a woman who's strong-willed, right? She might just be better than you, guys. And, and, and I, say, I, say that, I say that with all honesty, not even just to be funny. There is a sense that somehow you think as a man or you're taught or whatever that being a leader in the home meant you have to be further and outpace your wife and everything. That may not be possible. Like she might actually be wired and gifted and talented far more than you than areas that you wish you were. And you have to just sit back and go, you go, girl. And, and, and be secure enough in who you are as a man to say, leading doesn't mean I have to do everything. I have to stand behind and fan the flames and say, if this is what God has called you and us as a family to do, let me support you as we mutually submit to the authority of God. So submission in itself, Paul turns it upside down in this world. Because in the way in the Roman Greco world was, is that a man got to say, what I say goes, and the woman says, I know. There was no love, and there was, there, there was no um, affection. It was just, I knew I'm supposed to respect you because of the position. Well, when Paul talks about this here and even more so in Ephesians chapter 5, a parallel verse, he goes, no, 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 husbands, here's what authority looks like. Here's what headship or leadership looks like. You play the Jesus role. That means you leave the comforts of heaven to come down and, and sacrifice in a selfish way to be able to show love for your wife, to provide a way that she may be able to choose to line up underneath your authority. It is not what you want to do. It is not you getting the color car that you want. It's not you picking out certain things in the home. It's not you wanting to, whenever you want to have, you know, sex. I got to whisper it still. I can't say it out loud. Um, uh, that that it's you get to get whatever you want. The, the amount of times that people will come into the office and go, and I will hear a lady with her husband there say, and I know I have to do this because I'm submitting. I go, wait, that's not exactly what that's saying. Guys, you got to love your wife. Love her like Christ loved the church. And that is in selfless, sacrificial, giving up ways to serve her. That's what it looks like. And then wives now, submission, Paul says in Ephesians 5, you play your Jesus role too. Submission is always out of a position of strength, never out of weakness. The reason why we hate the word oftentimes is we go, it almost can communicate to women that they don't have anything or they have to hold back everything they have. All of us are called, every, man and female, at the cross, we don't get what we want to do. We're called to die to ourselves. But submission doesn't mean you lay everything back. Because God has wired you and gifted you with certain talents and abilities that you always bring that to the table. And when you're married to God willing, a very secure man that gets it, he listens. That you get to speak into things, that you get to make decisions on things, that you are given authority over things, that you actually begin to complement one another in communication and so forth as a healthy marriage. It's not out of weakness. It's always out of strength. And that you two get to together decide what the Lord is speaking to you guys. Amen? I think there has been, unfortunately, a lot of damage done to, I believe, women and families um, in a misunderstanding of this text. So I, I grew up in a family that I believe my mom lived underneath abuse and the church cared nothing about it because they kept saying, go home and submit to your husband. Go home and sit to your, your husband. If you're black and blue, that ain't good, right? Like there's no way that there should be abuse in the home. Like you, 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 we have to listen to scriptures, to people, and community to be able to understand what it is that God's calling us to do. Amen? Well, Paul says it to, to, the, to the 
older men, older women, younger women. And then he gets to younger men, and he's got like one verse for you guys, for us. Uh, Verse 6, likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled, meaning don't let your desires and your passions lead your life that you exercise godly restraint to submit your whole life under the lordship of Jesus. And then he calls Titus, who himself is a young man, to be an example to them. And here's how he says be an example. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good work. So young guys, be working hard. Whatever you do, do it heartily under the Lord. Essentially what he's saying is grow up. Like, grow up. This whole delayed adolescence thing. No, no. Grow up. If you are a man of God, that God has called you now to be a part of his mission, and the way that looks like is not only self-control, but you are working hard in whatever it is that you're doing. And then he goes on that says, and in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Disciple people. And the way you're going to disciple people is you have to know this, that every single man and woman in the church should be a theologian, that they should understand what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says in response to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That it's not, oh, I got a question, go to Ricardo. No, no, I got a question, I'm going to go to the people around me. Because God has called me for this. And so what I don't know, I need to know in order that I can come alongside other people. So there's a sense of going, God's calling you as younger men, take another step. If we're going to mature as a church, we need our younger men and younger women to go, okay, I got to grow up a little bit. And I got to grow up spiritually. And I need the help of Jesus of this. So he says, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. What he's saying is when you live this out in a certain way, it's not that people who don't believe in Jesus are going to go, oh, yeah, now we believe in your Jesus. It's just going, it's done with such integrity. It's done with dignity and reverence in such a way that they are going to be put to shame if they say anything negative because everything we're doing is from the pure of heart. And so so Paul lays this out for us, even family-wise, older men respond to the gospel. Um, Older women respond to the gospel. Younger women live into and respond to the gospel. And the same thing with younger younger men. And then he closes up this whole section in verse 9, and he talks to bondservants. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, bondservants or slaves. When we hear slaves, we think of antebellum south, like we think about slavery that way. And there's a spectrum here. Um, There were a lot of slaves in that day. In fact, over one-third of the population were bond servants or slaves. Many of them were being paid for what they were doing, and they could either earn enough money to buy their freedom and no longer be slaves. And it's often taught that way, like, oh, these slaves are nothing like the slaves we think of. However, like anything else, there's a spectrum. There were men and women who were treated completely like property and not like humans. Paul says when the gospel comes into this, the way it looks, and it talks about us in the way that we work, that you work in such a way that you're not argumentative, right? Doesn't mean you don't have your thoughts or opinions, but you're not argumentative. Let me ask you this. Are you you ever in the lunchroom or the coffee room or the chat room, whatever you do in your work, and you start complaining? Like, we have, a, we have a culture of complaint. We complain just to complain. Like, it hasn't been complaining for a while. Can you go? Oh, yeah, it's hot out there. <laughs> right? Oh, I hate it when they do that. Thank you. Whew, man, I was, right? You're not argumentative. It, it says that you're well-pleasing, meaning you people want you there. Like, the way that you work in such a way, people are glad that you're there. Let me ask you this. No, no, I can ask you this, but go ask people around you <laughs> that work with you. Are they glad you're there just because of you? 
Like, is there something about the way in which you work, the way in which you care for the people around you, that you respond to the fact that God has extended grace to you, you did not deserve it? And so now you extend that same grace, mercy, and love to the people around you? It says not pilfering. That means don't steal. Now, most of us, we're pretty, you know, normal people. We don't, we don't steal. Let me ask you this. For those of you guys who work hourly, do you always put the right amount of hours? Um, those, those of you guys who are on Facebook and getting back to your texts and making phone calls, are those always on your break only? No. Or, or, or may, may, maybe it's something like this. If you just, do you always work the way that you're supposed to work? Or are you finding ways to cut the corner? Looking at the clock, when is it going to be over? I mean, that, that, that's what he's talking about. He goes, when you live in light of the gospel, you realize now you don't just work for some owner or some employer. You work for God. Can you imagine if God was your boss? Like you were sitting there at the cubicle and God showed him and said, hey, oh, God. I mean, God. God, yes, you, Lord, mighty Savior, ruler of the world, right? And he's just looking like, hey, what are you doing, right? That's what he says you should work that way. That ultimately God is the one who's routing your paycheck, and every job that you have is basically full-time ministry. It just depends on where he has you at. And work in light of that. And then he says this. When you do that, it says this, the very end, that in everything that it may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Here's what he's saying that. That when we live as older men in response to Jesus and women and younger men and younger women and as employees and employers, it, it, it's done in such a way that the world who does not believe begins to look at how we respond to the gospel and discipleship and they are, it adorns the, the God and doctrine of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is it begins to look attractive to them. They're not, our friends in Christian, and, and that are not followers of Jesus aren't going to hear a pastor talk about submission and go, yeah, I want to be in. They're not going to hear a uh, husband loves your wives and so forth and go, we want to be in. But when they see a wife loving their husband, if they know that there's, there's mutuality of respect and relationship, that there's trust there, that no one's wondering if somebody's going to step outside the marriage, when your kids are cared for and you've given your kids proper boundaries and respect and love that they can grow and they can flourish, people love that. People love it because they go, where can I get that? When your employer is just like, I, I, I cannot lose you here. Where's this other place that you want to work at? Because I, I want to tell them, no, I'll pay you more. I just want you to be here. There's, when we begin to live out the gospel is when we make God look beautiful. And the way that we do that is all of us looking to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we want to understand what it means to be self-controlled, we can look at Jesus saying to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. Or we want to understand submission, ultimately look at Jesus giving himself to submit to the love of the Father and Son. I can only do what my Father tells me to do because I know that he's good. That when we understand what it means for us to mature, that we look to Jesus who's ultimately our strength. And when we understand what it means to work hard, we look to the work of Jesus himself to be able to fulfill us and to give us the power that we need to do exactly what God's calling us to do. Amen? That everything we do ultimately is a response to the gospel worked out in the context of one another. And when we do it faithfully, the world around us would say, how can I get on that? How can I know this God and Savior of yours named Jesus? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the life and love that you have extended to us through the work and because of the work of your son. That on the cross that Jesus did take upon the penalty of our sin, and through the resurrection, you brought forth a new world. And you were constantly bringing forth a new world not only in our hearts, but the way in which we live. God, I pray that our relationships and marriages and parenting and singleness and all the areas in which you've called us to, we would think uniquely on how to live those out. We would think 
Christianly and how to live those out. That we would rely on the Spirit and the people who've given us in the church to understand how to live out the gospel in the culture in which we find ourselves. May many, Lord, begin to see you and know you through the way in which we serve you, and the way we work, and the way that we love. In Christ's name, amen.